We appreciate you guys for being here, however we're here. And we're going to look at uh, lesson number seven. We're still in chapter two, which is the chapter, the main theme of the book, which is uh, warnings against false teachers and false prophets. Will be This will be the third part within this chapter. We looked last week at the doom of the false prophets, and we looked at their end and how God in his holiness is going to be just and he's going to ultimately judge the false prophets. He hates what they say, what they spout off. He hates this because it brings confusion and it brings error into his church. And it causes some of his to fall away who are weak and unstable. And he hates what it does and its effects. And so he will judge. And we looked at the three uh uh, historical references to how God judges wickedness and false teachers. We looked at uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. We looked at the the, uh, the the pre-Diluvian flood. We looked at the days before Noah. And then, of course, we looked at how God judged the fallen angels. We decided and looked at that. We spent most of the time talking about Lot. The scripture said that he was a righteous man, and we talked about how he often didn't resemble uh, that what scriptures call him to be a righteous man, but we looked at how he pitched his tent near Sodom. We looked at how he lost his uh, credibility with his family. We looked at his heart how it was still in Sodom. We looked at the mercy of God that literally drug him out by the hand and pulled him out before he destroyed uh, that wicked city. So we learned some great lessons from Sodom uh, and we learned some lessons from Lot's life. So, uh, uh, so now I want to look at the depravity of the false teachers, the depravity of the false teachers. And we're going to predominantly be looking at, at uh, chapter two, verses 10 through uh, uh, through 19. Uh, we're going to look at a lot in Jude also. Jude is going to be a very similar scripture from this second chapter of Peter. It's almost uh, verbatim. Uh, and it, and it corresponds and it matches perfectly with the other text in Second Peter. So let's look at Second Peter, uh, this morning, chapter two, and we'll start at verse 10 as we look at the depravity of the false teachers. Let me read, uh, starting chapter two, two, uh, yeah, chapter two, verse 10. Uh, and especially those who walk according to the flesh, in the lust of uncleanliness and despise authority. They are presumptuous. They are self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they don't understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. They entice unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and they've gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. 
a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrain the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. So let's stop there. I don't know how far we're going to get. Uh, as I looked at this and tried to, the biggest problem I had with this is how to organize it. And so what I have done is I've, I'm going to use a broad brush and I'm going to describe these false teachers and prophets. And then I'm going to look at how this broad brush describes them. And then we'll see how, uh, they manifest their ungodliness through the way they live their life. So we want to start this where with, uh, we're going to describe the false teachers as ungodly people ungodly people. And I'm going to use uh, many verses for this. The word ungodly, uh, those of you in here can uh, see this on the board. The word ungodly, the Greek word is uh, asebeis, A-S-E-B-E-I-S. And it simply means it's, it's a comprehensive word that describes the character of these false teachers and these false prophets. The main point is they, they have no reverence for God. The awe that they should have that would restrain their evil is absent from them. They have either seared their consciences or they never had a conscience to begin with. And so they are ungodly. They do not fear God. They don't reverence him. They don't worship him. They don't give him the, the, uh, the, uh, the glory due his name. They don't obey him. They do not, uh, they do not yield to his authority as Lord or master in their lives. So their lives are characterized by ungodly behavior and they are in a broad brush considered ungodly people. And, and their ungodly hearts is reflected in their deeds and their speech and their desires. It's like with anyone else, out of the abundance of a heart, we speak. And so we give evidence to who we are on the inside by how we react, how we act, how we, how we worship, how we live our lives, our motivations, our methods. And so we're going to see that these ungodly people, we're going to pro, uh, we're going to, do this with a broad brush. And so we're going to see that these leaders and these prophets are ungodly in their hearts. And we see that uh, in many verses. Uh, let's look at uh, at Jude. Uh, uh, if you'll go over several books to the book of Jude, one chapter written by Jesus's half-brother Jude. It's a scathing rebuke on false prophets and teachers. It is very similar, like I said, to Second Peter, and it is very analogous to Jesus's condemnation of the Pharisees and scribes of his day in Matthew chapter 23. But look at Jude chapter four. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take Jude verse four as I open up this study. And I'm going to look at the primary reason why the book of Jude was written as it dovetails with this teaching on false prophets. But look at Jude verse four. 
Certain men, speaking of those who crept in at the beginning of the church in the book of Acts and in in the days of the apostles and in Christ's ministry, and applicable to Peter's day and applicable to us in in our day, certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men, there's that word asabaeus, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and Lord Jesus Christ. So we see this verse on ungodly men. Look at verse 15. Of the book of Jude, verse 15. Uh, this is uh, Enoch's prophecy, which is not in the, 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 the canon of Scripture, but it is, uh, is, is in the book of Enoch, uh, chapter, uh, first book of Enoch. Look at verse 15. Jesus is coming uh, to, to judge the earth, and he says in verse 15, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly. Among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Christ. And then verse 18, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their ungodly lusts. They are sensual persons, and they cause divisions they do not have the Spirit of God in them. So here we see verses about ungodly men. If you look at Second uh, Peter, I've already read this, uh, 5 and 6 again. Second uh, Peter 5 and 6, we see, we did this last week, did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, the preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. In verse 6, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward who would live ungodly. So we see these verses are going to help us to describe uh, the hearts of men who have no reverence for God and who show their lack of reverence for God by their acts and their actions. Now, if you'll turn with me to Psalms. It is a silent P, and it is not the palmist, as we heard this week. I had to say that. It's Psalms, and it's Psalm 1. And we see this uh, chapter is loaded with this word, ungodly. We see it uh, in chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is a man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Here we go. And then in verse 4, the ungodly are not like the righteous people. Therefore, the ungodly, verse 5, shall not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So here we see verses, and we see to support this phrase of ungodliness. Now, turn back to Jude. We see from Jude that the ungodly men, whom I'm about to talk about in good detail here, they uh, they do two things uh, that are particularly despicable to our Father and to His and to His gospel. And uh, they are they cause irreparable harm in these two things that they do. Look at Jude four, two things, and I've got these on the board. The first thing they do, it says these ungodly men they turn the grace of God into lewdness. 
Now, I'm not going to ask you what you think about this. There aren't many here, and most people don't communicate over Zoom. So what it really means, when it's, when Scripture says that these ungodly men turn grace into lewdness, simply means they purposely, and underline purposefully, alter the intended impact of grace. Grace was given so that men would respond, that men could be reconciled to God, that men would turn from their wickedness and turn to a holy God. Grace always intends a change of behavior. It always intends a turning from sin to righteousness. And there must be reconciliation. There must be repentance. There must be a godly sorrow uh, as part of the process of salvation. That's the intended impact of grace as Jesus redeems men from their lawless deeds so that men would turn to God. And so these ungodly men purposely alter the intended impact of grace, and they turn it into lewdness. What they do, we're going to get into this in great detail under part two when we talk about walk according to the flesh. They twist grace. Paul says they twist the scriptures, and what they do is they twist the scriptures to show who they are on the inside, and they turn grace's intended impact into a license to sin. They say, well, Scripture says that we're not under law anymore. We're under grace. So they say, well, that means that you, that law no more is applicable to you as a believer. You've been saved by grace, so you can live however you want to live. You don't have to be under the law anymore. You've been saved. You've been forgiven. So you have a license to live as you desire to live. That's called antinomia. Paul fought that in Galatia, in the church at Galatia. He fought that in the church at Corinth. He fought that in Romans chapter 2, Romans 3, chapter 4, Romans chapter 6. And uh, they take the verse, they twist the verse of Romans 6.14. You're very familiar with this verse. You were taught it well. Uh, 6.14, they take this verse uh, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under the gra- under grace. They twist it, and they say, well, uh, since we are under grace, we are no longer under the law, so we can live an unrestrained, licentious, lewd lifestyle because we've been saved by grace. That is twisting. That is a complete opposite. That is an anathema. That is a... That is a uh, scripture says that's another gospel, and this is a, another gospel. And if we preach another gospel, Paul said, if I do it or if an angel of heaven preaches another gospel, then I should be, they should be accursed. It is, it is, it is part of how scripture has been twisted over the ages, and it is very prevalent in today's anti-lordship easy believism, false teachings. It is very, very uh, uh, pervasive within the 
Italicis Christian Church today. So we'll talk about that in great detail. It's, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. And it's uh, it's just a twisting of, of what grace was intended. And uh, God never in his mind ne- ever even thought it that we would be saved and then we would be able to live however we want to. That is a po- impossibility. Paul says how who we have been saved from sin live any longer in it. And that's Romans 6. And so the answer is, of course, we weren't saved to live sinful lives. That's an impossibility if you are in Christ. And then secondly, the great error they made, the ungodly men, is they, it says in verse uh, 4 of, of, uh, of uh, Jude, they deny the only Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. They deny four things. In their ungodly hearts, they deny that Jesus is master. That word is despoten, D-E-S-P-O-T-E-N. So they are denying that he has absolute authority. They are denying that he is Lord, that is curion. And they are denying that he is Lord over his people. He is master. He has absolutely every right and we have an obligation to submit to him as our Lord. They deny that he's Jesus, Jesuan, J-E-S-O-U-N. That is denying that he is the Savior. And they deny that he is Christ, the Messiah. So they deny four things. These apostates, these ungodly men. And we see that in today's Christianity. And I say that again with the Antalyses, Mark. Uh, There are many folks who deny the absolute authority of Christ. There are many that deny that he must be your Savior and your Lord. There are many who deny, uh, of course, that he's even come. We talk about the Jewish faith and other uh, denominations within Christendom. Uh, Mormonism, uh, Mohammedism, all of these are uh, antithetical to to true scripture and truth, and they are marked by ungodly men who deceive. And so we see these false teachers as a broad brush. They are ungodly in their hearts. They don't reference God. They don't reverence who Christ is. They don't give him his proper uh, uh, claim. They deny him in words and deeds. And so these are the men whom Peter is warning the church today about. And these are the men that he's warning the church in his day. And uh, this is the history from Genesis to the Revelation. There are ungodly men. And then we see that these ungodly men manifest themselves. They give evidence of who they are in their hearts by three ways. And we're going to look at these three ways. And the first thing we see is how they manifest who they are in their hearts. They manifest this by covetousness. So number one, if you're writing these things down, we see ungodly men manifest themselves by their covetousness. And we see this in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 3 and verse 14, and then Jude 11 and Jude 12. Look at Second Peter 2 as we see the manifestation of their ungodliness, excuse me, is through their covetousness. Verse 3, chapter 2. By covetousness, they exploit you with deceptive words. 
Verse 14, 2 Peter, we see Scripture describe them having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. So we see uh, the first thing that evidences that who they are, that they are covetous. Look at Jude verse 11 and Jude verse 12. We see the same description of these false prophets. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. Okay, so that's an evidence that they're covetous because they do what they do for profit. Look at verse 12. They are spots in your love feast. They feast with you without fear. Look at this. They serve only themselves. So these covetous men who give evidence that they're ungodly, they're covetous. The word covetous means the desire for more. It's an insatiable craving and grasping for something that you don't have a just right for. Now, I think the 10th commandment is thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's wife, anything that is your neighbor's. When you covet, you show, <coughs> excuse me, that your heart isn't right before God. Covetousness is idolatry, Scripture says in Colossians 3, 5. Covetousness is when you have a misplaced heart trust and a misplaced worship. You worship things that you have no right to worship. You are not satisfied. You are not content with what you've got. And so you have a intense craving for other people's things and other people's stuff because you are not soul satisfied. Everybody understand that? Covetousness is insatiable craving because your heart's not right with God. You're not content. You are not worshiping God and placing him in his right place in your life. But you are pursuing things and stuff and prestige and power and whatever else you're pursuing. And it's covetousness. And it is misplaced trust. We see that throughout the scripture. Uh, we saw that in Lot's heart, that he wanted the best for himself. He looked and he saw and he wanted selfishly what was best for him. He didn't approach life in faith as Abraham did, but he approached life by getting what he wanted. And so that was the start of his demise as he pitched his tent towards Sodom. But we see that in the early church and we see that in this character. Do you remember Simon the sorcerer? Look at Acts chapter 8 as we see this example of covetousness. Now, this is Peter who is going to respond to Simon, the sorcerer. And there's no doubt that Peter probably had in mind this fellow as he was admonishing the church that Peter was addressing <coughs> in his books about the dangers of covetousness. Now, Simon... Uh, we'll see him in Acts chapter 8. He was a sorcerer. Verse Chapter 8, verse 9. There was a certain man called Simon who practiced sorcery in the city, 
and astonished the people, claiming that he was something great, to whom they all gave heed from the least. They say, this is the great power of God. And he made money off of his covetousness. Uh, and he exploited the people with his deception. And so he hears the preaching of the gospel. And it says in verse 13 that Simon believed and he was even baptized. But look what he did. He was amazed. He saw the signs and the miracles and he was enamored with the emotional response and the, of, and, uh, and the response of the people to Peter's preaching. So there, so we see this and then we know his heart isn't right. He, he comes across as, as someone who's saved. He's even baptized, but this is where we really see Simon's heart. Okay. Look at what he says. Uh, uh, look what, look what Simon wants. He's covetous. And then he says, uh, verse 18, he sees, he sees Peter and the apostles healing people. He wants this for himself. Okay. He wants to be able to heal people because he wants to make money and exploit this new ability he thinks he's going to have because he's believed and he's baptized. Okay. Look at this. Verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying of the hands, the apostle, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered him money. He said, give me this power that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the spirit. He didn't care about the people's heart. He was covetous and he wanted to exploit. But Peter said, verse 20, your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. I perceive that you are bound with bitterness and iniquity, Peter went on to say. So we see this example of someone who makes a profession, but whose heart is still not right with God because he is covetous and he desires something else in his heart. And his heart is not right before God. So we see this. And so we see these covetous people and look what they do. Chapter two, verse Three, they exploit you <coughs> with deceptive words. They, they use words, this literally means that are carefully made up and artificially formed to deceive you and lead you astray. This is going to be the typical method and motivation of today's, and I'll say it, TBN pastors. They form words, they form thoughts, and the purpose of these thoughts is to deceive you. Scripture says uh, in several spots that they allure unstable souls. Now, Peter's a fisherman. Peter uses this word allure. That word means to make his fishing bait. So these Covetous people, wherever they are, whether they be in Houston or wherever they are, they use clever, deceptive words as a lure to attract you like fish to the bait. 
Their hearts are trained in covetousness, and it is for them to make money, and it is to gather for themselves people with itchy ears. They don't talk about sin. They don't talk about the holiness of God. They talk about things that feed ego. And so through their enticing speech, their alluring speech, they're talking to people. They trap them like fish on a hook. And the purpose of it is to ultimately profit them, okay? But it is to, they talk about feeling good about yourself and positive thinking. They never talk about sin, but they talk about prosperity. They talk about, hey, you give, it's going to be pressed down. They take a scripture and they twist it. Hey, if you give, it's going to be brought back into you twofold and you do this, you're going to have this. You're not going to be sick. Matter of fact, all you got to do is name a faith. You claim that you claim it and you, you tell God by faith that you want this person healed and, and that's all there is to it. God's a genie. You got to rub him right. And it's just all of this twisted theology, but the heart of them that they're covetous and they are enticing you and exploiting you. And basically, and, and who do they affect? Who do they affect? Look at verse 14. Verse 14, these covetous teachers and leaders, look what they do. Verse 14, uh, they they uh they entice people enticing unstable souls their victims and i'll use that in italicies their congregates are victims because they themselves are not firm in faith and understanding of scripture they are they are gullible in scripture. They're not sound. Their feet are not firmly planted in the scripture. And so they are gullible to hearing anything that sounds good to them. You know what I'm saying? And so they get confused easily. They are very gullible to this because it, it sounds good to them. And it, and it sounds something that is is that is that, that meets their worldliness it meets how they live their lives and it says to them i can have this and i can have that too and it appeals to them and he in their specific tar- target audience is to those who are not sound and stable and understanding and learned in the scriptures now, we may think here in this church that how do they fall for that? The simple reason is because they don't know any better. They don't know the scripture. And if it weren't by God's grace, we would be in the same boat. And I know some of you have been in that boat, but God, by his grace and through his word, has brought you up in the faith. And you are no longer gullible to that as you used to be. So these covetous teachers their target audience is is those who are unlearned and unstable. They are like the parable of the sower. The seed is sown, and because the seed does not fall on fertile ground, but it, it falls on stony, rocky places that doesn't have depth of soil, the evil one takes what they've heard 
and that does not change them, but it it causes them and they do fall away and they're led astray by these covetous practitioners of of ungodly men. So is what I'll say. So that's what we understand then. And Peter reminds his people, Peter reminds us, look at chapter two, verse one, uh, chapter Chapter 1, verse 12. That's why Peter reminds them. Remember, this is one of the themes of this book. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. For this reason, I'm not going to be negligent to remind you, though you know and are established in the present truth. We who are partakers of the divine nature, we who have been saved by grace, who love the word, meditate on the word, Uh, We are the ones who are established in the truth. And he says, in contrast to those who are unstable, who are not stable in the faith and in the word, he says, I just want to remind you, this is where you could be. And this is where your fellow brothers and sisters have been or could be. It's grace and it's the word of God growing faith in you. And so that's what he is warning them. And then, uh, so we see the second thing I want to talk about is the second uh, manifestation of ungodly men. Uh, number one is covetous men. Number two is that they walk according to the flesh. And you will see that in chapter 2, verse 10. It's the first verse I read. Uh, chapter Peter, uh, chapter 2, they walk in the lust of uncleanliness. And this is also found in verse 18 of of, of 2 Peter. They speak great swelling words of emptiness. They allure, there's that word, fish bait, through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness. These are the men that give evidence that they're ungodly by the way they live their life. Uh, when it says they walk according to the flesh, that is simply, that phrase simply means that their day-to-day lifestyles are, character, are characterized by fleshiness. They walk according to the way their heart tells them to, and that heart is controlled by their flesh, and they're not walking in the spirit. They are those who is no difference in their life before their profession and after their profession. They live a life as if God's grace doesn't matter and that God's grace didn't impact their life. They live a life that is consistent with a lost person's life. Their lifestyles haven't been changed. And some of those lifestyles, uh, as we know, are found in many places in the scripture. An example of a lifestyle that is not changed and is no different than the lifestyle that was before grace is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we know many false claimers of Christ. I was one of those who did not give evidence that I was Christ. I had pitched my tent too near Sodom. And I became a leader of those who made false claims about who they were. But these are just some examples of, of those who walk according to the flesh. These are the false teachers and false prophets. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. The unrighteous will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Don't be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters. We talked about idolaters and covetousness. Adulterers, those who lust in their hearts for for relationships outside of their marriage. Homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, drunks, revelers, extortioners. It says you used to be that. But so... Uh, to give evidence to who you used to be, there must be a change of life and a change of behavior. But uh, these false teachers do not give evidence of change. Uh, this is found in many spots. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. If we do not live according to the flesh, here's what we shouldn't do. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3, Colossians. Put to death the members on the earth. Put together sexual immorality. Put to death uncleanliness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because these things, the wrath of God is going to come, and he calls them sons of disobedience. So these false teachers manifest who they are by how they live their life. They're covetous. And they walk according to the flesh. They're antinomian. They twist the intent of grace, which is to change us. And they say, you now have a license to live as you want to. That You're not under the law anymore, but you're under grace. So you eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. That's the attitude of these ungodly men. And that's what they're teaching these folks and what they try to teach us in this world, that the culture matters more than moral integrity. That, well, God is changing and evolving. And because the culture changes, we can change. And we're no longer imprisoned to the law. But we can now identify and adapt as Christians in the world. And we can come alongside our culture and be part of the change. And so you hear that. And you don't hear that, maybe that abruptly, I'll say. But it says, the culture, it says, well, now we've obviously, we've actually realized our self-actualization. We're evolving in humans. So now, obviously, the the, the intent of, of marriage between a man, that's changing because we change it. And now, and now we just have a right to love each other. And God doesn't care who you love. He just wants you to love one another. And if you love a woman or if you love a man and you're a man, it's okay. And so it tells us that the old is past. The law is no longer relevant and is no longer applicable to us. So that is the allurement of it. And it makes mocks you when you adhere to the law and you are a, you are, are a uh, fundamentalist and you are a extremist. And uh, when Pence won't get in an elevator with another woman that's not his wife, he's an extremist. And what a madman that he would be that crazy. Uh, and I could go on and on and on. Uh, but that's what the false teachers, that's what false religion says. And it tries to put you on this guilt trip. It, it tries to make you look like an idiot and a fool. And the media is going to come alongside this. This is the devil, the prince of the power of the air. And this is what we live in today. No de- different than Peter's day. Everybody shake their head if you understand. And we see this every single day we live.
So that's the same thing. And then it uses this example twice. It uses this example in in Second Peter, and it uses the example in Jude. And, and as he's as he is giving uh, us teaching on these false prophets, he says that they follow in the way of Balaam. Now I want you to put on your thinking cap. This is a character that we don't know much about, but I want to give you a complete understanding of Balaam. Balaam represents two things. Balaam is in Numbers 22. He's in Numbers 23, 24, all the way to Numbers 31. He is a very important character in the Old Testament. <coughs> and it says in this scripture, if you'll look at verse, uh, uh, let's see, where do we have Balaam in here? He is found in 2 Peter. Uh, I'm not in Second Peter. Let's go to Second Peter. We see him in verse 15. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey spoke with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. And then if you look at Jude, we again see Balaam mentioned. And I've never heard a sermon on Balaam, but you're going to hear a mini sermon on Balaam in a few minutes I got. And you look at, uh, at Jude verse 11. They've gone the way of Cain. They've run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. Balaam. The children of Israel were about to go into the promised land. They had destroyed the Amorites, and they were coming up against the Moabites. You know who the Moabites are? We talked about them last week. They are the product of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his two daughters. Okay? Is that disgusting as it is? But the Moabites are an enemy of God. And so they are coming up against the Moabites, and the king of Moabites is Balak. And Balak is, is afraid. He says, man, these people are chewing everybody up like ants. They're coming after us. We got to do something. So he has this brilliant idea. There's this famous sorcerer who lives in Iraq near the Euphrates River, and his name is Balaam. He's a sorcerer. He combines Eastern mysticisms. He pronounces judgments on people for money. And he is probably possessed by a demon. He's very gifted at what he does. And he has a reputation for being able to, for money, helping you out of whatever jam you're in. So he sends for Balaam, who lives hundreds of miles away. And he sends for Balaam and he says, I need help. And I'll give you this money if you come help me. Well, he's going to do it because he loves money. That's his gig. That's what he does. And so he's going to come and he is warned by God. You are not going to curse my people. You are not going to put a mojo on them and you are not going to cause them to lose this war. I've given the people this land and you will not do this. So Balaam, some acts of obedience some unacts of obedience. Balaam is a, is a very fascinating character. Balaam, although he is a false prophet, like these false prophets are, he does good. Matter of fact, 
Balaam is instrumental in four prophecies. And he prophesies that there's going to be a, a king that comes from the tribe of Judah. And he talks, he's the one that prophesies about the star. He's the one that prophesies about the scepter. And it's about Jesus. So even a false prophet, God can use for his glory. And he actually prophesies truth. And so, uh, so that's what we know about Balaam. What we don't know about Balaam is called the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam is, is fundamentally more important than Balaam's covetous practice. The doctrine of Balaam, we see this in the Revelation chapter 2. When Jesus is talking about the different church eras, and he's talking about the church age and the literal churches during the time of the revealing of Christ. And we see this in Revelation 2, verse 14. I have a few things against you because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. One of the great sins of Balaam is that after he refused to curse Israel after the donkey warned him not to. What he did, though, is he told the nation of Israel to compromise their faith and to marry these Moabite women and to mix the holiness of God, which was separate Israel in those days, and to compromise the truth and marry these Moabite women. What did that do? It brought compromise into the nation of Israel, and it brought a mixture, and mixture is never good. And so the doctrine of Balaam, you can read about that in in uh, Numbers 31, Matter of fact, let me look at Numbers 31. This is the doctrine of Balaam. This is what the false teachers do. They compromise truth. Look at Moses 31.15 of Numbers. Moses said, have you kept all the women alive? He told them to kill the Moabite women. Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Baal to trespass against the Lord. So Balaam said, hey, why don't you not kill the women? Why don't you mix and mingle with them? And it compromised the faith of Israel. And so these false prophets, in their covetous ways, because of their greediness, another thing they do that's even more reprehensible is that they cause us to compromise the faith and compromise truth. And we become a mixture that is weak and it's unstable and it, and it tends to fall away. So that's what it means when Peter uses this doctrine of Balaam and he warns us against Balaam. These false prophets do that. And, it, and it's a little leaven leavens a whole lump. Bad company corrupts good moral. This is this mixture and compromise of the absolute truths of God. And you compromise them with the world system and you mix it all up. And guess what you got? Nothing. Today's Christianity filled with compromise 
uh, no moral, moral fortitude, uh, no way to distinguish between a true follower of God and one who claims to be, and it's so sordid today, and that's all part of the, the work of the false teachers and the false prophets. What do you think about that? This is one thing I want you to get before I leave. I'm not going to finish today. Shocking. Look at this lie in verse 19. This is a lie that I want you to underline in your mind. This is what they do. These that walk according to their flesh. This is what this antinomialism says and does. Look at this is what they profit. Here's the, here's the, you got to get this. Verse 19, they, the false prophets, through their allurements and through their enticements, they promised them liberty. They themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he's brought into portion, into bondage. An antinomian, a false teacher, someone who twists the impact of grace says to you, it doesn't matter how you live your life. And they say that that is liberty. When you have freedom to sin because of grace, that is not what liberty is. Liberty is not the freedom to sin. Liberty is the freedom not to sin. Everybody get that? Liberty is not the freedom to sin. Liberty is the freedom not to sin. When we're in Christ, we have the new ability that we do not have to sin. We don't have to be consumed by our lust and our flesh. The antinomian, the false prophet says that's freedom. You can live as you want because you're under grace. But what he doesn't tell you is that living in sin is what puts you in bondage. Okay? You ask a drunk, you ask a sexaholic, you ask whomever, and they are in bondage to their sin. They're not free from their sin, but we're in Christ. Liberty is, is the freedom not to sin. We are truly free when we don't have to sin, that we can live a consistent lifestyle of faithfulness. We're the ones that are free. We're not missing anything, right? We're not bound to our sins, but we're bound to Christ. And so don't believe the lie that says liberty is the freedom to sin because you're under grace. No, 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 no. Liberty is the freedom not to sin. And it's the ability to live a life of faithfulness because of the true impact of grace in our lives. Next week, I'm going to talk about these beautiful metaphors that describe these false teachers. And there's eight of them. Uh, and I want you to look at that, if you will. Try to find the eight metaphors for homework. The eight metaphors that describe these false teachers. And then I'm going to look at some specific false teaching. And then we're going to move on to chapter three. Any comments or questions? It's 10 after, a little early, and uh, I, I appreciate you guys for being faithful in Zoom, and I appreciate you guys who are here in person, and there's not many of us. More on Zoom than in, uh, in person, but I appreciate you guys. Anything to offer or add? I'd like to say that the Zoom has allowed us to be still in contact 
with the body of Christ that we love and serve through. And that's great, Bible, and all its teachers and all its uh, uh, pastors. And we really appreciate you guys and helping us to do that. Because it'd be a, it'd been a long summer if we had not have had that. Well, I'm glad that glad for that testimony. It's our joy to do it. Anybody else have anything to offer? And I just want you to think this week about what you're going to hear, the lies you're going to hear from the media, from politicians, from the culture, and understand it's all part of this deception of this age. And it is not freedom; it is imprisonment. And, just and it is changing the nation, dude. You know, we we think about all the people that has uh, voted. Uh, this is okay. You know, yes. Isn't yes. It amazing, just unbelievable. Pray for well, your country. Amazing. Pray for these court decisions. Mm-hmm. Don't despair. Don't be disillusioned. Don't fall apart. Don't be anxious because God is sovereign. And he will raise up whom he will, and that person will be his his man. Won't be a godly man either way, but he will be for God's purposes, and it will be to accomplish his, his purposes for this country. And it may very well be for the judgment and for the degrading of this country, but don't be alarmed by it because God has written the end of the book, and he wins. And we win. And some of the things that are going to happen have to come about. And one of the things that has to come about is America losing influence and losing power. And that's just the way it's going to be. And just trust the Lord in that. Trust the Lord in that. Let me pray. And then uh, some of you come to church. Thank you, Father, for your word. Give us eyes to see it. Give us ears to hear it. Keep us from being led astray by wicked men. Keep us from falling under a trap, an illusion of truth. And help us to focus on what your word says and to obey it, to rightly divide it, and to understand it as the Holy Spirit of God makes sense of it in our hearts and our minds and changes us by it. Thank you for this good group of people. Thank you for their faithfulness. Keep them from disillusionment. Keep them from discouragement. Keep them from worry and anxiety. Help them to be faithful. Help them to pray and look to you and ultimately to understand that you are the sovereign and we can have full confidence that your plan is going to be carried out and it will be fulfilled. And we trust that. In your name we pray. Amen.